Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought Jesus Christ into this world. We pray that your Holy Spirit might speak to our hearts and that we might hear from you this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good evening, I want to welcome you all. My name is Andrew Russell, and I'm, I'm a pastoral fellow here at Grace Downtown. Recently moved to D.C. from Dallas, Texas. Any Texas fans in the house? There you go. Hook them horns, right? Um, so we moved from Dallas, Texas in August, and it is a pleasure to be here with you this evening. We're going through Romans, the book of Romans, and last week the senior pastor, Glenn Holberg, uh, preached on Romans 3, 1 through 20, and, and it was the bad news. But we have some good news tonight. And before I get into the good news, I want to share a story with you. I want to tell you a story of my firstborn son, who his name is Judah. And so my wife and I were anticipating our firstborn son, and my, my wife's belly is pretty big, and I'm singing to him, and I poke him, and he moves, and, and you know, I, I'm talking to him through my wife's belly, and I'm, I, I'm imagining, man, what would this guy look like? My wife is, is white, and so I was thinking, is, will he be black? Will he be white? Will he be Latino or Asian? Because, you know, when you put black and white together, anything could happen. So I, I'm thinking, man, what, what will this little boy look like, right? This anticipation. And then we go to a birth center, and, and my wife, uh, I believe she was a hippie in another life, but she wanted to use a midwife. And so I say, look, you're, you're having the baby, not me. So we go to the midwife. Things are not progressing. The midwife says, okay, y'all need to go to the hospital. So we go to the hospital, and the water was already broken at this point, and the doctor said, we need an emergency C-section. So we go into the room. The doctors are performing the C-section, and I have my camera in my pocket. I'm thinking, when this boy comes out, I'm going to take a picture or video. You know, you have to capture this moment. It's the first one. And then he comes out, this big, burly, nine pounds, four ounce. It looked like a little bear cub. I mean, he was looking around like he'd been on earth before. And the, nurse, the nurses took him and took him to the, the weigh station, and they weighed him, and he's screaming and growling. And I go up to him, and he grabs my hand. And I say, Judah, it's your daddy. It's going to be okay. And at that very moment, he stopped crying. It was, it was because he knew my voice. And I believe this is what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 3 and 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. This righteousness, it says here in, in verse uh, 21, this righteousness had been attested to by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, they were prophesying of this God righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal widely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Securely, And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this is in the Old Testament. This is before Jesus came. And in Jeremiah 23 and in Habakkuk chapter 2 and also in Ezekiel 36, we see glimpses of God's righteousness. We see the baby in the womb. We, we, God promised to reveal his righteousness. And like my son in the womb, we've heard the heartbeat of God's righteousness and we've seen the kick of God's justice. 
That word righteousness also means justice. So when you see that, those two words can be used interchangeably. However, the Jews saw God's righteousness as a future event yet to be revealed. Paul is saying, but now the righteousness of God is revealed, and yet the Jews thought it was a future event. Herman Ritterboss, in his book, Paul, an outline of his theology, wrote, for Judaism, the essence of divine justification lay in that it would take place in the future and in heavenly judgment, that the whole life consisted precisely in preparation for this, and that therefore it would be blasphemy to wish to anticipate this judgment which belongs only to God. So the Jews thought that only God can justify a sinner. In Luke, uh, in the book of Luke, when Jesus healed the paralytic man, they laid him, they're coming through the roof, and he was coming down, and, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Jew says, how can you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. You see, the Jews had no assurance of salvation. They call Jesus a blasphemer for forgiving sins, and their only hope came through works of the law and also the sacrificial system. God's righteousness could only be attained mainly by keeping the law, being circumcised, and also doing the yearly, uh, the yearly sin offerings on the Day of Atonement. And for the Jews, they also thought that the Messiah, when he would come, he would be a descendant of the king of David, and he would also bring an execute justice. So he would bring this final justice. He would defeat the enemies of the Jews. He would make a world empire of the Jewish nation. In Jeremiah 33, 15, it talks about the Jewish law being the law of the land. And yet the Jews are still awaiting for this descendant of David to come. But now, Paul says, the writer of Romans, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Salvation history has its climax in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the but nows in Scripture. Amen? You know, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin, which you once walked, and you were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 says, remember that you are one time separated from Christ and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near. First Peter chapter 2 says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'm thankful for the but nows. You know the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once would lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And so we no longer have to wait for this Messiah to come because he has already come. And he will come again. We believe Jesus Christ will return. And yet, in regards to salvation by his death and resurrection, Christ provided an assurance for salvation in the present time. Jews understood the concept of a Messiah, but that the Messiah would be God himself was blasphemous. 
God would never subject himself to human flesh. He was too holy. You, you know, the priests, the priests in the Old Testament, they would come before the Holy of Holies. And in the temple, in the Jewish temple, the Holy of Holies, it, it, was, it had a veil. And, and, and there was an Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark, it was a golden box with the uh, Ten Commandments and the, the Staff of Moses. And on top of this Ark was a seal called the Mercy Seat. And the Mercy Seat had two angels prostrated before. And so when the priests would come in on the day of atonement and the, and the yearly sacrifice, they would wash themselves, wear clean linens. They'd have a rope attached to their foot in case they, if they did the sacrifice in an, un, in an unworthy way, they might die because God was too holy. And so they would sacrifice the bull and, the, and a blameless or a, spot, a, spotted, a non-spotted lamb, a perfect lamb. And, he, and the priest would go on the mercy seat and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull seven times on top of the ark. And he would do this not only for his sins or his family's sins, but for the sins of the entire nation. And so if you weren't of the tribe of Levi, because, you know, the Levites are the, the priestly tribe. They're the only people who can go into the Holy of Holies. If you weren't of the tribe of Levi, you couldn't even enter the Holy of Holies. If you were, were one of the other 11 tribes, you couldn't even enter. So how much more us being non-Jews, what, 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 what hope do we have in coming before God? It would be as if we are signing our death sentence. You see, our problem in Romans 3 is that not only are we not righteous, but we don't want to seek God for righteousness. We look for other means to gain acceptance before God, and we realize that we can't expunge our tainted records. Do you know what the top seven felonies are? You know, I was doing some research, and I looked at this, and according to the Uniform Crime Report, the top seven felonies are selling alcohol to minors, uh, disorderly conduct, assault, larceny, theft, DUI, and property crime and drug abuse violations. And if you if fall under one of these particular felonies, you can't vote, you can't hold a public office, you can't adopt, you can't have a driver's license. I mean, you can't even own a professional licensure because you would forfeit that. And so, my brothers and sisters, when it comes to righteousness before God and having a perfect record, we all fall short. It says it here in Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all like convicted felons before God every time we apply for God's grace on our own merit. God the Father runs a background check, and, it, and when the results come back, we are guilty before him. We forfeit our right to true freedom and true holiness and being accepted before God. We have no peace with God, and we all deserve wrath. And what is God's wrath? It, God's wrath, the scripture says, is his anger towards sin. Since God is just and holy, he can't tolerate sin. He hates sin. He wants to sin. He wants to see sin utterly destroyed. Sin is like a poisonous snake in our midst. Sin is like a two-foot-long rat in our midst. And my brothers and sisters, I have a story of sin. Three days ago, at three o'clock in the morning, I was laying in my bed, and I heard some scurrying going on, and the noise got closer and closer, and I I told my wife, I said, babe, I, I think something is in our room. So I turned on the light, and, on my, and I'm telling you the truth. I saw a Norwegian rat 
in the corner of our house and he, he got shocked and he was running around in circles. So I do what any man would do. I got a broom and I wrapped it with duct tape on the outside so that when I stick it, he can stick to the, to the bro, you know. So this is 3.30 in the morning and I had to protect my family. And so I, I, my wife doesn't have her contacts on and, and we're, we're, we tried to corner this rat and he was running through the house and he ran in our room, ran in the room with our little baby boy. And so I turned on the light and it was, it was horrible, friends. And even when I tried to stick him, he, he jumped at me. So, my friends, I hate rats. And even now when I think about this, I call the exterminator and they have traps all over our homes. And I'm, and I'm terrified. But that is what sin is like. Sin is like a rat in our midst. You can't just live peaceably with a rat because that rat will, will produce more rats and more rats until they take over your house and then it'll be you or the rat. So that's what sin is like. I, I, it is so funny. I, I wrote that and, and that happened to me. I didn't even prepare to put that in there, but it, you know, it just happened. So pray, pray for the Russells. Pray that that rat dies and when I come home, I smell something foul. Let me see. I, I forgot where I was. Um, so sin is the result of man seeking his own will and rebelling against God's law, which demands total obedience and total surrender. God must be in control or else he wouldn't be God. Consequently, because he is in control of all things, he sets the rules. God's law says we must be holy as God is holy. God requires perfection and he judges us on the basis of his holy law. And some of you might disagree. Some of you might say, it isn't fair that God is angry with me. I didn't bring sin into this world. Well, that may be true, but we all participate in sin because of Adam. Adam being the first human that was created, and God said, Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. And when he did, his descendants inherited that innate rebellion, that innate, you know what, I know God says A, but I want to do B. So uh, all attempts of making ourselves acceptable for, before a holy God falls flat because deep down we don't seek God's righteousness for God's sake, but we seek righteousness for our own sake. We want a clean record that frees us from the condemnation of the law to prove to ourselves that we can overcome any obstacle. Going back to my example of anticipating my firstborn son, we want a child that we can control. We want a, we want a child that, that who fulfills our needs and our deepest desires. We want a righteousness that we have created. And God says that, no, this righteousness comes from me. You see, we, we like a God of love, but we don't want a God of wrath. We want a God who forgives us, but we don't want a God who calls us to be holy. We, we, and I'll say this twice. Me, when I think about forgiveness and holiness of love and wrath, it's like we want to get into heaven, but we, wanna, we don't want to go through hell to get there. Paul tells the Jews that the righteousness that you have anticipated comes from God himself. And he takes it a step further. He says that it is received by faith through Jesus Christ. This faith comes from believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your only hope for righteousness. 
Faith in Jesus' work fulfills the requirement of the law, and the law requires total obedience and total perfection. And Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. John Murray says justification, that's what this doctrine is called, is therefore a constitutive act whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account and we are accordingly accepted as righteous in God's sight. So instead of the works of the law being the standard of justification, Christ offers what the works of the law cannot which is a righteousness that comes from God himself. The law and the prophets pointed to a Messiah who would make perfect righteousness possible, yet little did the Jews know that this righteousness would also extend to Gentiles. The Jews are chosen people. They are the covenant people of God. And so when they think about righteousness, they would say, yeah, Andrew, I agree with you, but hold up. You're going to give it to Gentiles, non-Jews, pagan people? You see, in the Jewish mind, uh, only they can receive this righteousness since they are the chosen people, like I said. And Paul expands this definition. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He expands the definition of Jews and God to uh, God as creator and we as creatures. So with the creature-creator distinction, all of humans, all of mankind is in view. Because of God's grace and mercy, he decided that he would take it upon himself to restore mankind to his former glory, which is to be in the presence of God and taking dominion over creation. We were created to change the world for his glory. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that we were meant to have glory. We were meant to display God's glory. We are created to, to, to create masterpieces, and yet we are satisfied with just graffiti, spraying graffiti on walls. God is creative. Mankind desires that both Jew and Gentile live in his presence with no shame and no guilt. God wants both Jews and Gentiles to experience a righteousness that restores humanity to its original glory. We all want glory, but we want it illegitimately. The beauty of the gospel is that the success that you crave and desire comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through his work on the cross, his death and resurrection. And and Paul says, we receive this righteousness in Christ. It is one of Paul's favorite words, in Christ. It speaks of our union with Jesus so that, like I said, when, when you look at justification, our unrighteousness gets put on Jesus and Jesus goes to the cross. And so in Christ, when Jesus dies, we die. And he puts to death our unrighteousness. And when Jesus raises from the, de- from the dead, we rise and he gives us a new righteousness. And we can only receive this by faith. John Murray, in his book, again, Redemption and Accomplished, says, No one has entrusted himself to Christ for deliverance from the guilt of sin who has not also entrusted himself to him from the power of sin. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ not only cleanses us from sin, but it is the power of God to defeat sin. We see this in Romans 1. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. See, a lot of us think that justification, yes, it is a legal term. Yes, you have been declared righteous, but we still struggle with sin. 
So what do we do with our struggle? If you are in Christ today, you say, yeah, Andrew, I agree with you. I know that I have the righteousness of Christ, but I still struggle with sin. We believe this. We believe that, you know, if I have this one particular sin that, that I'm struggling with, this habit that I can't shake off, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe this justification is nullified. If you believe this, then you don't have a true grasp of what justification by faith means. It is a one-time event with an ongoing force. The righteousness that we receive from Christ not only cleanses us from past sins and present sins, but also future sins as well. But it doesn't give us a license to sin. The law we could not live by, by, by uh, the law that we could not live by now has been written on our hearts through the blood of Jesus Christ and his redemption from, sla- from, from slavery to now freedom. Therefore, when the, the, the hymn writer says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, Jesus is the revelation of God's righteousness. He is the baby we've all been waiting for. Christ died on the cross to redeem us from sin and death so that those who might believe in Jesus Christ might be justified and declared righteous before God the Father. He takes our filthy record with felonies and puts it on himself and gives us his perfect record of righteousness so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees his only begotten son. Death has brought us life. The gospel gives no room for boasting. That's why Paul said, why do we boast? Paul is reminding the Jewish Christians that they should not put their confidence in the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ gives us access to the Father that was once denied through the law. And so God's people, both Jew and Gentile, now have peace with God because Christ has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish on our own. Salvation in Christ is by faith alone. It is, and it's all by grace alone, which means that we did nothing to receive it. We did everything to disqualify ourselves from receiving this righteousness. And God has done everything in his power to give it to us. Jeremiah 9 and 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I'll close with this. Y'all know who Brett Favre is, right? Brett Favre, famous NFL player. Any Green Bay Packers fans in the house? Okay, y'all playing, I think y'all playing Dallas tonight. Is that right? I, I'm sorry, but y'all, Dak Prescott, man, he, he, is, he is the truth. So, but anyway, back to Brett Favre. Brett Favre, who played for the Green Bay Packers, he also played for the Minnesota Vikings, and he was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. And in this Hall of Fame speech, which lasted 30 minutes, Brett Favre talked about his father. And I'll, and I'll read some of it. I, I wrote it down because it was so powerful. Brett Favre says, my father was short on praise 
but long on tough love. If he, were, if he ever was to praise me, I didn't hear, I didn't hear it. It was always, you can do better. He was always pushing me to be better. Never did I hear him say, son, you've arrived, or you're the best, or that was awesome, or great game. It was always, yeah, but. And then Brett Favre goes on to talk about this story of how it was his last football game in high school, and his dad was his coach, and he was waiting for his dad to take him home. And his dad was talking to the other coaches. Apparently, Brett Favre had a bad game. And his dad says, you know, he'll play better. I know my son. He will redeem himself. He has it in him. And Brett Favre sat at the outside hearing his father talk about him in this way. And he never heard his dad give him one single compliment. And his, the Brett Favre says his chest puffed up. And he said in this Hall of Fame speech that ever since that day, he wanted to make his dad proud. And then, and, and then he spent the rest of his career trying to redeem himself. And he said these words, which these words kind of seem unbelievable for a man who had experienced the height of his profession. He has experienced, uh, you know, all these accolades, and now he is the Hall of Famer. Only few people can even say this. And then Brett Favre says, I hope I made my dad proud. Brett Favre comes to the altar of his father and he says, all of this stuff that I've done, daddy, I hope it's good enough. And as I watched this speech, I, all I could see was this little boy crying for his daddy's approval. Paul says that the love and approval that we crave for from God is not gained by works, but received by faith. We have done nothing good to gain God's declaration of righteousness, but have done everything wrong. Yet because of God's grace, God himself takes the initiative. He redeems us through Jesus so that we might receive the love of the Father. And we receive this by faith. And so, like Brett Favre, we don't have to come before Daddy saying, Daddy, I hope you're proud. I, I hope I've done enough to warrant your affection. I, I hope I've done enough to warrant your love. God says, you know what? I'm not going to wait for you, but I'm going to take the initiative. All you have to do is receive it by faith. J.C. Ryle defined true faith as this. And I'll close with this. Laying hold of a Savior's hand. Leaning on a husband's arm and receiving a physician's medicine. Faith brings with it nothing, nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing, it contributes nothing, it pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives and takes, accepts, and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows the hymn writer says nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross I cling you see God wants to take your nothingness and he wants to give you everything and you only can receive this by faith you have to present yourselves as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable before God and he will justify you and make you holy that is the good news of the gospel we don't have to do anything but receive the gift that God has earned on our behalf. And we receive it by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is all 
by grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you have taken, took it upon yourself. You have not waited for us, O oh God, but you came when we were yet sinners. The Bible says Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, you died for us. And Father, it is hard to believe that. Even for those who are in Christ, we, we try to work our own righteousness. We try to, to make ourselves acceptable before you, and, and yet you say the work has been done. And so, Father, strengthen our faith. And if there's anyone today who have not received you by faith, I pray that they might see that you have created them for glory. Father, show them that you love them. Show them that you sent your only son to provide a righteousness that comes from you. And so we thank you, Lord, for your blood. We thank you for your redemption. And we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.